Tonight's reading is from the book of Joshua. As Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with each ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. And the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets. The rear guard came after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. To the people, Joshua gave this command. You shall not shout or let your voice be heard, nor shall you utter a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So the ark of the Lord went around the city, circling at once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord passed on, blowing the trumpets continually. The armed men went before them, and the rear guard came up after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually on the second day. They marched around the city once and then returned to the camp, and they did this for six days. Now on the seventh day they rose early at dawn and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and those who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers we sent. As for you, keep away from the things devoted to destruction, so as not to covet and take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel an object for destruction, bringing trouble upon it. But all the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the shout of the trumpets, they raised a great shout. And the wall fell down flat, so the people charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. And then they devoted to destruction by the edge of the sword all in the city both men and women, young and old, sheep and donkeys. The word of the Lord. used in so many ways, weird ways, absurd ways, beautiful and ugly ways. For example, this text, very popular children's Bible lesson. I guess it's a compelling story, seven priests with seven trumpets made of ram's horns. Kids like trumpets. 
All the people march around Jericho for six days, kids like marching, and no one says a word in that six days of marching. Seems super hard, not a word. And then on the seventh day, they go around seven times, and on the seventh time, Joshua commands the people, okay, everyone shout, and they all shout, and the trumpets blast, and the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. Maybe it was a whole thing about not talking until God told you you could that the Sunday school teachers were compelled by. But the moral of the story was, whatever God asks, it may seem a little picky or like a lot to ask, marching and marching around and around and around, not saying a word. It may seem futile or strange, but if you do it exactly how God asks, you'll get God on your side. Victory. Maybe a miracle. Like the utter destruction of an entire city, death to everything that breathes inside it, women, children, oxen, sheep put to death with the edge of the sword, and there will be some silver and gold vessels you can nab from the midst of the ruin and the scattered remnants of people's lives and in the midst of the bloodied corpses. The whole marching around the walls, being quiet thing may have had some appeal in the minds of the writers of children's curriculum. But I wonder what mechanism... What sort of indoctrination or patriotic-like fervor would keep them, or the children, from imagining what's going on inside of the walls of Jericho? I mean, imagine how scary it would be for the people inside the walls, watching this silent march around and around, over and over again for six days, and the people carrying some weird cultic objects. Blank faces like some witch, some conjurer had prescribed this ritual to cast a spell, the silent march in the seven times, seven times. It really sort of does have the feel of some sort of formula for sorcery. I mean, imagine some Jerichoian child sitting on his bed, looking out his window, increasingly aware of his parents' growing terror. His mother forgets to feed he and his brothers. The family sleeps curled up together. And then on the seventh day, they wake up to a horrible yelling. And then his home and his life collapses. His mother reaches for him, and he watches as a soldier slits her throat with a sword. His family, friends, his goats, his cat, massacred, annihilated. Great Sunday school material seems like a horrible story. But then, on the other hand, there's Mahalia Jackson on the Nat King Cole show singing Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho, and the way she sings it, the walls came tumbling down, hallelujah, you feel like, yes, maybe by the power of God or by the power of song, every oppressed Repressed, downtrodden, enslaved, persecuted, abused, homeless, hopeless, captive, people will rise up and blow their trumpets and march and sing, and the plantation owners, the masters, the slave-driving powers that be, the corporate-controlled, environment-destroying consumer culture will come tumbling down. Hallelujah! And then all the people will live free. Jericho is the first city to fall in the book of Joshua, which is all about the conquest of Canaan. 
The Israelites are freed from slavery. And then God leaves them out of their oppressed misery, promising them a future, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then God helps them, so the story goes, to get the land away from the people who have been living there. It's a narrative that inspired the slaves in this country, that gave birth to a whole host of really beautiful gospel songs. On the other hand, God in this story pretty much tells the Israelites to completely exterminate everything in Canaan that breathes. It's hard to read the stories straightforwardly and not feel a little bit queasy about them. It's actually hard to look at the city of Jericho today and not feel a lot queasy about this story. Jericho is located in the West Bank. It's been under the Israelis' military occupation since 1967. The Israelis control the water, the mail, the electricity, the roads, the airports, the borders. Palestinians can't get in or out without permission from the Israeli ministry, military. And a lot of Palestinians believe that the goal of the Israelis, Israelis, sorry, they believe that they want to exterminate them. Well, maybe they're familiar with the stories in the Bible. Some people say that the West Bank is more like an open-air prison than a viable home. Chronic water shortages, extreme poverty, restricted movement has ravaged the hopes of economic stability. And almost surreally, seriously, they are encircled by a 26-foot-high concrete wall. The walls of Jericho, a security wall meant to contain the Palestinians. The walls aren't tumbling down for the Palestinians. They're going up thicker and wider and harder and stronger. Most even conservative biblical scholars would agree these days that the story the way it's told in Joshua never really happened like that. There were no conquerors of Canaan that swooped in and swiftly annihilated the entire population. The archaeological evidence overwhelmingly contradicts this presentation of events. And it seems a little like, well, what a relief. The Israelites weren't maybe actually involved in the wholesale slaughter of the native inhabitants of Canaan. They didn't commit genocide, go through the land slaughtering women and children, didn't actually impale people on stakes for public display in town after town. Well, thank God. But what would make a people tell a narrative like that? A story like the conquest of Canaan. To what end? By what impulse? The book of Joshua was most likely composed hundreds of years after these events supposedly happened, which they most likely didn't. Written at a time when the Israelites had been driven off their land by the huge empire of Babylon. And they were in exile. They were living like refugees. So maybe when you're sitting around a fire in a refugee camp without a home or without resources and you're hungry and you're tired and you're downtrodden and some boy exhausted from hauling water for the empire says, Dad, tell me a story about our people. 
And maybe dad's feeling a little bit weak and unempowered, and he sees the light going out of his kid's eyes, and so he doesn't say, well, son, there's not much to tell, really. We're just like everyone else, full of all the same heartbreak and grandiosity and distorted self-esteem and fears and appetites and shame. We're often weak and fearful and occasionally very confident and mean sometimes, kind sometimes, you know, unremarkable, really. Just caught up in the same historical and political and social forces that everyone ever has been, we're like everyone else. There's really not that much of a story to tell, really, other than that. Instead, he looks at his kid's eyes and he says, Son, there was a time when, well, when we were like heroes. And he says that as he moves a log into the fire with his worn-out shoe. There was a time when our people had come out of slavery, and we crossed the River Jordan in the Promised Land into our home. And all the people of the land saw us crossing over, and all the inhabitants of the land were faint-hearted because of us. And he wipes the smudge of dirt from his boy's face. We'd just been stumbling through the wilderness. We'd been slaves. But suddenly, everywhere we went, people's hearts melted when they saw us. And our fame was in all the land. Maybe that. Sometimes the stories of the heroics in Joshua, the exaggeration of the glory, are so puffed up, so over the top, that you wonder if they're meant to be funny, some sort of farce or parody. The Israelites' first encounter with a human being in the Promised Land is a prostitute, Rahab. Two spies go to spy out Jericho, and when the king comes around looking for them, she hides them until the king leaves. When they talk to her, she says, As soon as we heard of you, our hearts melted, and there was no courage left in any man because of you. And I tell you, there was no courage left in any man because of you. Truly all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Who tells that sort of story? Well, maybe not quite everybody, but most people tell stories in ways that make themselves sound bigger and better and more significant than they are. Maybe especially when people are feeling a little bit afraid or insecure. I mean, I don't know. Have you ever known anyone or, or any nation or maybe any politician who tells stories that make things seem a little one-sided or less messy or grander than they are? In part because it makes a good story. In part because there's something about a story of triumph, a story with a leader who can rise up and defeat the enemy. Something about that sort of story gets people riled up. A spark in their eyes. Yes, we can. The most interesting or wild or unbelievable thing about the Bible is that that sort of story stands for about 10 minutes before you can see the cracks breaking through the surface. The thing about the biblical canon is whatever's in front of you at the moment, 
Your peripheral vision can't help but catch these flashes coming in from all the sides, all the different stories. The story of the people of Israel is fraught. Institutions are established in the text, nation, king, priest, temple. And then they're undermined in the text by counter-narratives that expose over and over that these institutions are fragile, corrupt, or irrelevant. I like that in a book. I like that in the story of a nation way more than America the Beautiful. In Judges, which comes right after Joshua, the nobility and the heroics of the time are diminished by much more intimate stories of imperfect and vulnerable and messed up humanity, like Samson and Delilah, like the Levite whose concubine is raped by his fellow Israelites. In the Judges, the people of Israel start fighting among themselves. They start committing atrocities against each other. It's like almost immediately after this supposed conquest, swoosh, a thousand other fragments shoot in to puncture these tales of glory. In Leviticus, there's a warning from God to the Israelites. Don't behave abominably. Don't behave abominably or the land will vomit you out as it vomit out the nations before you. The book of Kings reports that once in the promised land, each generation of Israel is worse than the next. All the language of how Israel destroyed the Canaanites is used against itself in the prophets. It's like, for a nanosecond, there are heroes and conquerors. And then the story turns into a sort of slow-mo vomiting out. The Israelites defile and pollute and mess up and fail to love. They don't take care of the poor. Their stories may start out with a triumphant conquering, but it ends with the land vomiting them out into Babylon. As a story of a nation, it displays a remarkable capacity to be self-critical. You don't see that a lot. The Hebrew scripture continually revises and unravels itself. It twists a lot. And the seeds of the unraveling seem to be planted even in what seems like the most straightforward stories. In the story of Jericho, for example, the people are coveting a home. The Israelites kill all the people of the city, and then they steal its treasures. But how strange in the center of that, the instructions are repeated over and over, go round and round carrying the ark, which contains the tablets tablets with the commandments that say, do not kill, do not steal, do not covet your neighbor's home. The story may seem straightforward, but there's enormous tension just under the surface. Just before this story, which seems all about God's on your side, God's on Joshua's side, just before Joshua sets the men of war circling around the city, Joshua lifts his eyes and sees a man, the angel of the Lord. And Joshua says to the angel of the Lord, Are you for us 
or are you for our adversaries? And the angel of the Lord says, no. Seems like a little bit of a funny, strange answer to the question. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? No. And Joshua fell on his face and asked the angel, what does the Lord bid his servant do? And the angel says, take off your shoes. Maybe it's not by the power of God, by heroic conquering, that every captive will be set free, but by something much more vulnerable than that, something broken and something shed, not glory solidified, but power undone.